Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today, I am excited to feature yet another episode in our series on the Commune Podcast called Ask Dr. G. And we consistently get fascinating questions from our Commune community regarding health. And I simply cannot imagine anyone better to answer these inquiries than my friend, Dr. Sarah Gottfried. So Sarah has been kind enough to lend her considerable experience and knowledge here on the show on a regular basis to answering these questions. Now, Dr. G is a Harvard-educated physician, researcher, and educator. She received the moniker of Dr. G from the Philadelphia 76ers, for whom she serves as health coach. She has led commune courses on the topics of perimenopause and menopause, and happily, we seem successful in luring her up to commune Topanga on a regular basis where she is leading retreats with my long suffering betrothed Skylar. So you can be part of the conversation and submit your questions at onecommune.com backslash ask Dr. G that's A S K D R G to learn even more from Dr. G. You can watch her free commune masterclass women, food, and hormones at onecommune.com slash menopause. So we're so grateful for those of you who write reviews on Apple Podcasts that we created a special offer just for you, 30 days of free commune membership. That's all access for a whole month. Just scroll down to the review section and tap write a review, then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review, preferably a positive one, to receive your free all access for 30 days. Note that if you're on a laptop, you'll need to click listen on Apple podcasts to open the app. And while you're there, make sure you're subscribed. Okay. In today's episode, Dr. G and I tackle questions about insulin and managing glucose levels. Dr. G explores the pros and the cons of the ketogenic diet specifically in connection with reversing insulin resistance. And Dr. G and I draw from our personal experiences monitoring our glucose and the protocols we've adopted to reverse our prediabetes. As always, this was a fascinating conversation and I hope you enjoy it and find it useful. Okay, without further delay, I present to you, Dr. Sarah Gottfried. Dr. Sarah Gottfried, great to be with you. Hi, Jeff. So we started a series on the Commune podcast last summer, 2023, called Ask Dr. G. And by popular demand, here we are again. And uh, this time it's actually uh, with an additional wrinkle because we have solicited questions from your community, the commune community, et cetera. And we have now a highly populated Google sheet (laughs) (laughs) full of fascinating questions. And the the biggest challenge is choosing which ones to answer. So if you don't get yours answered right away, hang in there. there. Yes. Okay. So I'm excited. Um, And this first question comes from Zuzana with a Z. 
just makes you want to break into song. Yes, and oh, we might. Susanna. Yeah. Don't you cry for me. <laughs> okay, we won't quit our day jobs. Um, so, uh, Susanna, and I need some aid from my blue blockers, uh, says, I was diagnosed with moderate insulin resistance and prediabetes at the beginning of 2023. I managed to get my glucose levels into the quote-unquote safe, we'll talk about what that is, non-pre-diabetic zone, but it seems like the insulin is going to be a longer fight. Okay, so then the questions are, what are correct fasting insulin levels? I can't seem to find a consensus on that answer anywhere. And secondarily, what are your thoughts on the ketogenic diet for insulin resistance. So we'll start with what is the optimal zone there for insulin levels? Well, you and I have talked before about the normal range when it comes to blood marker testing, biomarker testing, and then what I consider to be the optimal range. So for instance, if we if we start first with glucose and then start talking about insulin, we know with glucose that your fasting glucose should really be somewhere around 70 to 85 milligrams per deciliter. Now, the normal range that I was always taught is 70 to 99. Mm -hmm. Above that, 100 to 125 is the prediabetes range. 126 or higher is in the diabetes range. So I don't want to be in the normal range. I want to be in the optimal range. So when I discovered that my fasting glucoses, which were similar to yours, when I discovered in my mid-30s that they were in the 105, 110, 115, 120 range, I was shocked. You know, no one was tracking this. I found it on my own. And I realized that prediabetes is a pretty serious issue that we want to consider. And I'll layer in the insulin in just a moment. But I just was looking at some data showing that if you have prediabetes, which you and I have both had, and we both have reversed, if you've got prediabetes, it's a state in which your delightful pancreas, which has these islet cells that produce insulin, are ill in. So you get about an 80% loss of function of the islet cells in your pancreas when you cross over into a diagnosis of prediabetes. 80%, it's a lot higher than I ever thought it would be. But you've experienced this too. So tell us about your glucose and we'll, we'll get to insulin. Yeah, so I had a lot of the symptoms of insulin resistance and high glucose without really knowing that I was pre-diabetic. And I'm probably not alone in, in that For regard. Sure. You know, I've read statistics that now in America, 50% of adults are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. And in that pre-diabetic cohort, about 90% of those people don't know that they're pre-diabetic. 90%. 90%. It's enormous. We uh, have to change that. 100%, starting yeah. today with this podcast. Yes. Yeah. And so I had all the most common, boring, prosaic symptoms, brain fog, chronic fatigue, 
Um, I had these weird little brown tags starting to oh, form skin tags, skin tags yeah. under my arms. Yeah. Um, I've seen them on the back of people's necks too. Sometimes yeah. those raised little brown bumps. Sometimes acanthosis nigricans, which is the discoloration, mm. kind of the velvety color. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. And so... Um, Wait, you know, can we just, can we yeah. finish that list? Because I think this is really critical. Yeah, yeah. So did you, did you also have carbohydrate cravings? Absolutely. Carbohydrate cravings. Um, I was chronically insomniatic. I had what I call like dad bod, <laughs> you know? So I had a nice little, you know, muffin top there yes. on my jeans. I call it my epigenome because it sits there <laughs> right above my jeans. Um, we we might need a separate podcast just on the the you know the dad pod. The dad pod, right? Well, yeah. I, let's cubbyhole that. I had some other, I would say, maybe female sexual secondary characteristics that we could talk about on another episode. Um, and uh, trying to think what other symptoms, but. I guess I would say is that these symptoms were so common and so kind of boring and, you know, not completely debilitating, but very like, you know, it's just kind of limping through life, but it was so easy to just attribute it to like, mm, well, I just kind of am a little off today or like I got a bad night's sleep or, you know, there's just so much stress at work and I'm, I'm overworked, all those things also being true. But I didn't really realize where I was until I put on a continuous glucose monitor. That's and that right. was like a bucket of ice water, non-deliberate in that case, over my head. <laughs> um, and yeah, I was running, you know, levels, fasting glucose levels of 125 milligrams per deciliter and then postprandial spikes all the time north of 200. Yeah, so you were right on that precipice heading toward diabetes. Mm -hmm. So to make the diagnosis of diabetes, we're looking for a fasting glucose of 126 or higher. You can also look at it from the perspective of hemoglobin A1C. Mm -hmm. So normal hemoglobin A1C is 5.6% or less. Prediabetes is 5.7 to 6.4. Diabetes is 6.5% and higher. And really, I think a better way to diagnose it is to do a two-hour glucose challenge test. And my preference always with the two-hour glucose challenge test is to collect both glucose and insulin. So you mentioned some of the symptoms that I think are so common with prediabetes, with insulin resistance. And then there are these biomarker tests that we can do as well. So let's talk about insulin for a moment. And I just was asking you about your insulins. And yeah, what do you have to say about that, Jeff? Well, I'll be publicly embarrassed here <laughs> that I don't actually really know. Um, I do know my um, my blood glucose levels now because I happily wear a, uh, a continuous glucose monitor. And I have had the normal panels that are done that at a by your primary care physician that do look at hemoglobin A1C. But I think... But I haven't gotten my insulin test and I know, and I requested that from my doctor who's cool, actually. She's yeah. a cool doctor. She's not like some old, you know, white haired dude, you know, and, uh, and she was kind of like, man, I don't know. I mean, your hemoglobin A1C is fine and, you know, you wear a continuous glucose monitor. So, you, you know, I don't really think that that's a necessary test because it doesn't, it's generally, at least it's not included in her battery of, of, of labs. 
Yeah. So, so I appreciate her and I totally disagree. Yeah. So what we know from epidemiologic studies is that glucose changes relatively late in the process of insulin resistance. So maybe we should define that just briefly. How would you define insulin resistance? Mm. Well, you know, insulin is a peptide hormone largely tasked with ushering glucose to the cells for the use of energy production. And over time, in the presence of a lot of glucose, your pancreas has to produce a lot of insulin. And the beta cell. The beta cell, right. And in the body, I will say this as a general comment, the excess of any one molecule will create a resistance to itself. Yes. It's kind of a golden rule of physiology and homeostasis. I know that by analogy with tequila and <laughs> coffee. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so your cells become insulin resistant. And, you know, without getting too technical, they shut the front door on glucose. Shut the front door. Yeah. Yeah. So beautifully described. I think of it as, you know, your cells become numb to the insulin signal. I like to use the bouncer analogy at a club where you've got insulin kind of standing at the door of the club, letting people come in and come out just like glucose. And if you've got a bouncer that is not working properly, you're just going to, you're going to have a lot of people on the street that are just not making it inside the club, inside the cell. So insulin resistance was something that I really struggled with in my 30s, maybe even dating back to my 20s, and I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And just as you assumed, I thought that the fatigue, the difficulty as a result of insulin resistance with my body having the kind of energy that I needed for my mission, that gap that I was experiencing, I think most of it was insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. So insulin changes seven to 14 years before the glucose signal changes. Mm -hmm. So we know that from the Whitehall study that was done in the United Kingdom. And so you want to be looking upstream from these glucose changes. I wish that we could measure insulin continuously, but we don't have that technology right now. And so when it comes to insulin, when I was in my 30s and I had many of the symptoms that you're describing, fatigue, carb cravings, um, just feeling like I was pushing a rock up the hill to, to accomplish my daily activities. I went to the lab and found that my fasting glucose was 105, 110, and my fasting insulin was about 25 to 30. And I was surprised. So that was outside of even the conventional medicine, so-called normal range, which is really two to 20. Yeah, it's interesting because so much of medicine has been focused in relationship to diabetes, has been focused on type 2 diabetes. So the the presence of lots of insulin, like hyperinsulinemia. Well, let me let me let me rewind there. Is that high glucose levels can appear in both type 1 and type 2 diabetics. Yes. But there is a huge difference in terms of the amount of ins the serum insulin between type 1 and type 2 diabetics. So we focused on the glucose, but the story is actually really the insulin, right? And so 
you know, like you say, it's just been glucose is a relatively large molecule, as I understand it, C6H12O6 or something. And insulin is a very small little molecule. And so it seems to be more difficult to test for, but certainly there's plenty of testing that one could do for it. It's right? pretty easy to test. Yeah. But I was taught not to measure it when I went through my conventional training. So I'm not mm -hmm. blaming conventional physicians, but I found that testing insulin is incredibly informative. Yeah. And so what I've learned is that the normal range is two to 20. The optimal range is really somewhere around two, three to six. Yeah, that's what I've heard. So that's the first answer to Susanna's question. And I appreciate that she's noticing, you know, kind of this real life example that she's gotten her glucose is better, but she's still struggling with her insulin. And my insulin now is kind of in the four to six range, which is where I really want it. Mm -hmm. So it is a longer term project to be working upstream, which is something we do in functional medicine to be looking at okay, what's the control hormone for glucose? What's the control system? Insulin is part of the control system. And so we want to optimize that. So get in that two to six range. But we also want to be thinking about some of the other factors. Cortisol. Cortisol raises blood glucose. So if you're someone who really optimizes your food plan, like maybe Susanna has done, you do want to work on insulin, but you also want to be working on toxic stress. You want to be working on your stress response. You want to be looking at some of these other hormones that are involved. You especially, you know, the continuous glucose monitor gets us to focus on nutrition, the food that we're getting, the dose of carbohydrates, kind of finding your carb limit, which can change over time. And also to really look at exercise mm -hmm. because that, you know, I think... I'm going to go full engineer on you here. I think so much in terms of the inputs and the outputs. So the input here is food. The output here is also how you're disposing of glucose. So what kind of exercise and movement you have in your life? Yeah, I mean, it, glucose is not a bad proxy per se, but as you suggest, you can have decent blood glucose levels but your pancreas, your beta cells are working overtime yes. to produce insulin to vacate that glucose. That's right. And so even though CGM might give you a decent reading, it's worth, it's, there's absolutely every reason in the world to get your insulin tested because that good reading might in some ways obscure an yes. upstream problem. Yes. It's not the complete picture. Yeah. So the way I think of it, going back to her bouncer analogy, is that the bouncer is getting exhausted. Like the bouncer is pulling double shifts. It's like working so hard. Insulin is rising. Your pancreas is working so hard. Your glucose might still be fine. But if you're just looking at glucose, you're not getting the full picture. You want to combine it with the insulin. So I think that's really critical. When we look at insulin resistance, it's interesting to me. Like if we look at I tend to always look at sex differences and gender differences. It's just kind of the way that I'm made. And when you look at women in particular, we know that for women who are overweight or obese, 
about 70% of them are insulin resistant, 70%. So some people assume that it's higher than that, that it's, you know, if you've got obesity, you're definitely insulin resistant. And that's not true. Although the numbers are certainly higher than people who are at a normal weight. So if you're at a normal weight, you still have this risk of insulin resistance. I was at a relatively normal weight. I had a body mass index of 24, but I was pretty significantly insulin resistant. So for Susanna, I don't know anything about her weight, but I just think that's important to realize that for overweight and obese women, about 70% are insulin resistant. Hey, it's Jeff. And when it comes to your health and longevity, you hold nothing back. You understand what it means to push harder and reach farther and go that extra mile. Well, this relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build strength, speed recovery, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, your DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance for the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, You'll also unlock real-time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist right there in your pocket. If you're interested in this innovative service, I've got great news for Commune listeners. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Dr. G. That's insidetracker.com forward slash DRG. If the primary goal of insulin is to vacate the bloodstream of glucose and cells, the bouncer becomes stingy, well, then where is that glucose destined for? You know, once it's lingering there. In your loitering in yeah. the street, the blood vessels and insulin. Need, it, it needs to, it needs to be, have some fate, right? Like, and I know it can, you know, it can get glycated and create these inflammatory glycoproteins and whatnot, but otherwise it's generally ends up being stored as fat. Is that yes, right? That's yeah. right. That's right. So there's especially an increase in visceral fat. And, you know, the other thing it does is it starts to damage blood vessels and this is another really important sex difference because when I was insulin resistant, which for me went on for quite some time. So my glucose just got better after I discovered that I had insulin resistance in my mid thirties, my insulin took much longer than my glucoses, but it wasn't really until I started wearing a continuous glucose monitor five years ago that I was able to dial this in. What prompted me to do that was that I went to an internist who really focuses on these things, really focuses on insulin resistance. And he did all this cardiometabolic testing, like advanced non-invasive cardiometabolic testing. And he found that my blood vessels were starting to get damaged. 
So he could measure it by looking at the compliance of my blood vessels. And so when I saw that, I realized, okay, this is getting serious. Like I'm getting to the point where this may not be reversible and I really need to address the problems that I have cardiometabolically. And then of course I went to the literature because I'm a total nerd. And in the literature, what I found is that the initial cutoffs that we described at the beginning, like this cutoff of 125 for the upper limit of prediabetes, 126 for fasting glucose as a definition for diabetes, were defined in men. And when we look at sex differences, when we look at these biological differences between men and women, we know that women show more vascular damage, more downstream consequences of prediabetes than men do. So I would even debate whether the cutoffs that we use currently are low enough for picking up some of the abnormalities that we can see in women who are prediabetic. So prediabetes is not just like this minor predisease condition that you should use as like a yellow flag. It's a red flag that you need to turn the ship around. Yeah. And that's why it's really never too early to be focused on your health. You know, this is not something, you know, this is, uh, it's not like a rescue boat that you want to drop in the water once, you know, the ship has hit the iceberg on your, in your fifties or sixties. This is something you want to start to pay attention to even in your twenties and thirties. So That's right. You know, yeah. if you have big plans and you want to, you have a mission to, you know, a transformative mission, you've got to have that wind at your back. And I would say your metabolic system is that wind at your back. 100%. So when I embarked on the journey to reverse my insulin resistance, I started to play around with different dietary choices. And I looked, you know, at the ketogenic diet, I kind of landed initially uh, in homage to our friend Will Colt on the ketotarian diet, yes, um, which was a keto diet, but, but more plant focused, I would say. And I had a bunch of different reasoning for that. I've actually subsequently changed my approach slightly now. Um, but to more address Susanna's, Susanna's question, um, what are your thoughts on ketogenic diet for insulin resistance? Short version is I'm a fan, but I think you have to do it in a way that uh, really pays attention to how much inflammation you're creating. Because I would say there is no food plan that works across the board for everyone. So when it comes to insulin resistance as well, I don't think there's one food plan that really stands out as effective one size fits all. So with a ketogenic diet, we should probably define it first. I think of it as a low carbohydrate moderate protein, high fat approach to eating. And so you dial in your macros to the point where you enter nutritional ketosis and you're switching. If you think of your body as a hybrid car, you're switching from burning gas or carbohydrates to using electricity, which is the, the ketones that you produce when you're following a ketogenic diet correctly. So I'm a fan of the ketogenic diet and in preparation for our time together, I did take a look at some of the um, systematic reviews and meta-analyses that have been done looking at the ketogenic diet for insulin resistance. 
most of what's been published is looking at it for type 2 diabetics. So that's a more extreme version of insulin resistance, but we can still draw some conclusions. And with the literature that exists right now, there was a study published in 2020, maybe we can link to it in the show notes, that showed in type 2 diabetics, what you get overall with a ketogenic diet is pretty impressive results. So overall, what they found in the systematic review and meta-analysis that is that you drop with a ketogenic diet, your fasting blood glucose by about 23 points. That's milligrams per deciliter, hmm. 1.29 millimoles per liter for our European audience. You also find in type 2 diabetics weight loss of about 19 pounds, loss of about 4 inches off of the waist, decrease in body mass index of about 3.13. And I think what's really interesting about it is that unlike caloric restriction, many people who try a ketogenic diet have greater satiety because ketones give you satiety. Mm. So in some ways, when we think about just the role of behavior change, that's what I really like about the ketogenic diet with a few caveats. So if we just go back to the conventional world, the conventional world is that when you have type two diabetes, when you have kind of this extreme version of insulin resistance, the focus is on dietary change, usually weight loss, and then medical evaluation. So we've got to start with those fundamentals. And then with the ketogenic diet, what I found is that there's such a personalized response that we want to be tracking. So I tend to favor a ketogenic diet that's very vegetable rich, as you described. It's what I wrote about in my book, Women, Food, and Hormones. And we also know that, you know, from tracking thousands of people in my practice who go on a ketogenic diet, men fare better than women. Mm. And I think that's related to muscle mass. I think it's related to carb thresholds. I think women have a higher carb threshold overall than men. Women tend to have more hormone disruption in response to a classic ketogenic diet. For instance, more thyroid dysfunction, they have more sleep issues. Um, sometimes they can have an increased cortisol response. Yeah. It's hard to know whether that's direct or indirect. So women might need more carbohydrates just to sleep well and to make some of the hormones that they produce, including uh, thyroid hormones. And so I've made some adaptations to the ketogenic diet that I write about in my book that I think can really make a difference, including putting detoxification in place first. So making sure that those detox pathways are open, that's kind of a basic principle of functional medicine. I find that my patients do a lot better on the ketogenic diet when those detox pathways are open. And also layering in intermittent fasting as a backdoor to producing ketones, I think that's really critical because there are some people who are quite carb resistant, um, quite insulin resistant. Let me say that again. There are some people who are quite insulin resistant and they have a tough time getting into ketosis. It can take weeks sometimes to start producing those ketones and get to that place of satiety. And so if you're restricting your, your eating window, you've got time restricted feeding say you start with a 12 hour overnight fast and you build to a 14 hour overnight fast, that can really help the transition to a ketogenic diet. Mm. 
Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I found that getting enough fiber was key for me, um, for my gut, and also just to create that lattice work um, to slow the absorption of macronutrients into my bloodstream. So, um, and 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 so I think that's an important asterisk in the ketogenic diet, at least for me. Um, it is for most people, I would say. So when you look at, for instance, the microbiome, so the set of microbes and their DNA, we know that for people who are on a classic ketogenic diet, the microbiome can really shift in a direction that is not favorable. And so we want to be careful about that. Most of this data is drawing from the neurological literature, looking at, you know, children with seizure disorders who go on a ketogenic diet, but this effect on fiber when you go on a classic keto diet, I think is critical to consider. So fiber is so essential and so many people have a fiber gap. You've got a fiber gap at, at baseline and then you go on a ketogenic diet and it gets even worse. So I think fiber is really important. It helps to stabilize blood sugar. It helps you with satiety, helps you with your lipid profile, which, you know, if you look at, for instance, the Verda study that was done, it was, um, not a randomized trial, but it was looking at type two diabetics. They found that about 60% of type two diabetics could reverse their type two diabetes, come off their medications mm. with a ketogenic diet. They found that, um, hemoglobin A1C dropped by 1%. So if it started at, you know, say 6.6, .6, it went down to 5.6 into so-called normal range. Um, but they also found that LDL can go up and go up by about 10%. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, it's always like that sensitive balance and cultivating that because I think that it, it, clearly fat and the consumption of fat is not going to have the same trigger effect on insulin as carbohydrates That's and even right. protein, right? So an insulin is an anabolic hormone. It, it's going to tell your body to grow essentially. And if you look at like type one diabetics who by definition can't produce insulin, they're often like rail skinny. That's right. Because their metabolic rate is just like off the chain, right? And, and that is because there's, they're maintaining such low levels of insulin, if any. And so I, I've heard of, in some cases of, of actual type one diabetics actually kind of titrating their, their insulin, their exogenous insulin to maintain weight. That's right. And it's, that's scary. So, so that's a mechanism that I think is helpful to understand. At the same time, fat is very caloric. It's, you know, nine calories per gram, right? So versus carbs, which is like four and then protein, which is four, but really like three with a thermic effect. So a keto diet, you know, you can overconsume fats such that you are, you know, all of a sudden consuming 4,000, 5,000 calories per day. And there is a thermodynamics thing going on. There's sort of like, there, there's a hormonal argument for weight management, but there is something to the old fashioned calories in calories are thermodynamics conversation. If you're essentially consuming 5,000 calories worth of fat, for example, because you're just ketogenic, you will gain weight. Yes. 
And eventually, if you gain too much visceral weight, that fat, those adipocytes are going to secrete inflammatory cytokines and create fatty liver. And then you'll have the same problem. You'll, you'll be insulin resistant through that back door. <laughs> right. So, I mean, at least that's the science that I have been it's following. absolutely true. Yeah. And that's what happened to me. So I, you know, I sometimes joke that I've had every hormonal imbalance <laughs> that a person can possibly have, because apparently I just need to keep learning about the, the different nuances of it. And so I failed the ketogenic diet the first few times that I tried it. And the mm. first time I failed was this very problem that you mentioned. So I found that when I was following a ketogenic diet, I was just, you know, having so much fun with the fat I was consuming. Yeah. So awesome. satisfying. Yeah. Right. But I, I agree with you. Calories matter. Hormones matter more, but calories do matter. And so in my research, for instance, that I've done with Jeff Follick at Ohio State University, he talks about how you really have to do a hypocaloric ketogenic diet to be successful. Yeah. No one wants to hear that, Yeah, but that is it. the truth. Yeah, that's it. Well, I think that's where the intermittent fasting adjunct, like you said, yes. sort of helps you backdoor into ketosis um, because... Intermittent fasting doesn't always equal calorie restriction. Obviously, you can eat 10 pints of ice cream in a half an hour or whatever, or maybe in an hour or something like that. But generally, if you're reducing that window of consumption to eight hours or 10 hours, let's say, you are probably going to restrict calories to some degree. And if you combine that with the satiety that is offered by a ketogenic diet, that generally yields exactly what you said, a ketogenic but hypocaloric diet. And I, I find that that recipe, you know, it won't work for every single human in the world, but I think it's a fairly fail-safe recipe. It's pretty effective. Yeah. And I think it's also important to say that ketones are not just you know, kind of this weapon that you can use to improve your satiety and get to the insulin and glucose that you want. They actually have pleiotropic effects. They have beneficial anti-inflammatory effects. My favorite one is that it really helps you with focus. Mm. So when your perimenopausal and brain fog is occurring as a result of insulin resistance, but also the loss of estrogen, it can really make a difference with glucose metabolism in the brain. Mm. Now, one other point you made that I think is important is that there's some sex differences when it comes to intermittent fasting. Yeah. So women tend to go into ketosis as a result of time-restricted feeding at a later time than men do. So men on average go into a ketogenic state from insulin resistance right around the 14-hour window, whereas women tend to take a little bit longer, more like 16 hours. So it's a subtle difference, but it's something that you want to keep in mind. And it also makes me say, tests don't guess. It's mm -hmm. much more, I think it's really important that you consider getting a device that's measuring your glucose and your ketones if you want to be successful in a ketogenic diet. Mm -hmm. So this is probably way more detail than Susanna ever wanted. <laughs> yeah. But I think these are important pieces that you and I have discovered as we've 
gone through this path, maybe a few steps ahead of Susanna to reverse our insulin resistance. Yeah. Well, thank you, Susanna, for your questions. Of course, thank you, Sarah, um, for the conversation. So I would say in summary, the correct optimal fasting insulin levels. I would say it's two to six. Two to six. And it seems like, yeah, keto for insulin resistance with a few asterisks, right? That's right. A few caveats. Cool. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our Ask Dr. G series. As I mentioned, we have a special offer for those who review the show on Apple Podcasts by writing a review, preferably a good one. You can receive all access to the Commune course platform, which features over 130 courses now on health and wellness for a whole month. So just scroll down to the review section and tap write a review. Then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review to receive your free all access for 30 days. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly any old time at jeffk at onecommune.com. And lastly, but certainly not leastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make the show possible week over week over week, including Jacob Law, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Cooper Mall, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.